Tell it to 
scream it from the mountains. Go on and tell it to the masses that he is God. Um, well, good morning, City Church. Um, will you please stand with us for our call to worship? Um, we'll be reading from Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 13. And hear these words, um, prophetic of uh, the, the Messiah. This is what the Lord says. I will answer you in a time of favor, and I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to make them possess the desolate inheritances, saying to the prisoner, come out, and to those, to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They will feed along the pathways, and their pastures will be on, all on the barren heights. They will not hunger or thirst. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them, for their compassionate one will guide them and lead them to springs. I will make all my mountains into a road, and my highways will be raised up. See, these will come from far away, from the north and from the west, and from the land of Sinem. Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth, rejoice. Mountains, break into joyful shouts. For the Lord has comforted his people and he will have compassion on the afflicted ones. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we remember afresh this morning that you are our comforter and our rest. You are the God who saves and makes a way for us to be restored unto you. You bring us out of darkness show us compassion and cause us to rejoice. God, help us to open up our hearts this morning in genuine worship to you as we, we remember that you show grace to the afflicted and compassion to those who are oppressed and that there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Lord, would you be glorified in our worship this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing His mercy is more together. Nope, across the lands. <laughs>
together of his mercy is more praise the lord his mercy is more stronger than darkness new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is more Could remember what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy is more. we constantly run. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the His blood was the payment, 
His life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than dark.
Good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is Ryan. I am one of the pastors here, and it is great to get to worship with you this morning. Uh, when you came in, you should have received a bulletin. Inside that bulletin, there's a connection card, and this is a great way to let us know that you are here this morning and also to uh, express interest in anything in the church, getting plugged in with the church. Or if you have a prayer request, uh, there's a little space on the back of the card where you can fill that out. Chipper and I pray through all those requests on Monday afternoon, and we love getting to uh, know how we can pray for you better and how we can best pastor you. So we encourage you to fill that out. You can drop this uh, in the box on your way out, or you can just slip it in the pocket that's in front of the seat in front of you, and we will pick it up. Uh, following uh, Jesus, part of following Jesus is uh, a response of worship through generous giving. And so if you would like to give, you are uh, welcome to do that. You can always give online at citychurchgnv.com slash give, or you can drop a gift in the box on your way out as well. A few announcements for today. We, we actually have a lot of things going on over the next week. Uh, a couple of things today. One is a taste and see. This is a great way to get connected with the, the church if you are new, uh, if you've been around for a little bit but haven't gotten plugged in and you want to know, how do I take the next step? Taste and see is where you can find out more about that. It'll be uh, after each service today, right downstairs. Uh, when you go out, turn left, and you'll see a tent right out there outside of the bowl. And we'll have some pastries out there. We'll have community group leaders, ministry team leaders. Chipper and I will be down there. And would love to share real briefly, like five, ten minutes, a little bit about the vision of the church and how to get plugged in. So if you are new or you've been around a while but haven't gotten plugged in, please come and uh, join us for that. Secondly, we have a street outreach team going out this afternoon. This is a ministry that we've been uh, doing for about half a year now or so, trying to serve those who are experiencing homelessness in downtown. Uh, so that will be happening at 1.30 this afternoon. If, you're, if you've been on that team before, you can come at 1.30. If you're new and you'd like to get oriented to what it looks like to to do that, you can come at 1 o'clock, and Tyler will be there to help uh, orient you to that. Uh, also, we have two adult ed classes that are starting this week. The first is physical education class. This will be Monday nights, uh, begins tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, right in here. And the, the focus is the significance of God's presence in ours. Why is it significant that we are embodied souls and that we, we relate to one another personally. So it's going to be a great class. It's co-taught by Chipper uh, and another pastor here in town, Mike Roop, and at uh, the other uh, free church. And so we'd encourage you to uh, attend that. It's six weeks long, and you can just show up or you can find more details on Realm. Uh, also, we have a questioning Christianity class that is starting on Wednesday. That will be 6.30 p.m. this Wednesday, uh, led by Tyler and it'll be in the community room. This is a great class. If you have questions about the faith or you're, you're new to faith and trying to learn a little bit more about the foundations of Christianity, or maybe you've had doubts and you, you need some help wrestling through some of those doubts, this is a great place to come. So I encourage you to check that out, show up. You can RSVP also on Realm, our social media app. If you're not on Realm, you can sign up for that. 
at the welcome table back here, there'll be a, a hospitality volunteer who can help you get connected, and it's just a way that we share information uh, from the church throughout the week. And then finally, two other really exciting announcements. This Friday, we will have a night of worship that will be at 7 o'clock. Uh, it's always one of the highlights of my semester, and a lot of fun, great time. The band will you know, have a dozen songs or so. We'll be in here and just have a wonderful time of worship and hearing from God's word and you know, pouring out our hearts to the Lord. So I encourage you to come to that if you would like to. I think childcare is available upon request if you let us know by tomorrow. So let us know by tomorrow. Uh, contact us at info at citychurchgnv.com and we can arrange that for you. Lastly, Next Sunday is a big Sunday. We've been telling you for a couple of months now, but next Sunday is our City Roots Launch Sunday. This is the official launch of our City Roots project, which is our effort to purchase and eventually renovate this building. And so we are launching that to our entire church body next Sunday. If you want to be here, it's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of exciting updates and uh, vision to share about that. So please do anything you can to be here next Sunday. Uh, we'll have special elements in both the services and then some fun things afterwards, okay? All right, uh, Nico, one of our pastoral interns, is going to come up and share a little bit about missions. We do a mission spotlight about once a month. He's going to share a little bit more about that. Good morning. So yeah, each week or each month at City Church, we do a global mission spotlight. So this is either an update from one of our missionary partners um, or just an update, update on the church around the world. Um, so as many of you know, we partner with Ebby and Esther, um, who are two Indian missionaries who work and labor in India, but currently they're in Chicago right now finishing their PhDs. Um, Ebby just finished his, and then Esther is finishing hers up right now. Um, and her research is really cool. She's looking at what lifelong discipleship looks like and some of the implications of that. Um, but each year they host a conference. So they have an organization called Gospel Life Resources that reaches out to um, Indians and Indian Americans within the U.S. and also abroad around the world. Um, and so the pandemic has actually heightened a lot of the stuff that they've been doing um, because all this is virtual. And so um, they've been able to minister and have discipleship training and resources to these people all around the world, which is really, really cool. Um, and so like I mentioned, they're hosting a conference. So last year was in Chicago, and then they've asked us this year to host their gathering. Um, this is going to be August 4th through the 7th. And they're going to be planning all the adult material. So Ebby is planning and bringing in speakers from um, around the country to come in and speak. Um, but then children and youth will be planned um, and prepared um, with us on staff. So um, our lead, or our team lead for this is going to be um, Tesh, Tesh Yu and Jess Harris for kids, um, and then youth will be Jay and I, and then kind of overseeing the logistics of it all will be um, Freddy Krause and I as well. Um, so we're going to need a lot of hands on deck and a lot of volunteers for this. Um, they're going to be flying into airports, whether it's Jack's, Orlando, or Tampa, so we're going to need ride pickups, um, but then also during the event we'll need kitchen and set up, tear down, um, and a whole host of other activities. So in the back, there's some forms with some of the volunteer opportunities and a QR code. So if you have any interest at all in helping out with this, um, go ahead and fill that form out. This isn't any commitment. This is just to get a gauge of um, where people are and what roles we can see um, things happening with. Um, so if you have any questions, feel free to email, email me or reach out. Um, this is a really great opportunity for people who want to be in the mission field or want to be working, but whether it's jobs or different things going on, they don't have the accessibility to do that. 
um, but what greater an opportunity it is to invite some of these people from all around the world to come to our city and minister to them to then be able to go back out into the different areas that they're in. So thanks so much. If you have any questions, let me know. Great to be with you this morning. My name is Chipper. I'm one of the pastors here. Our scripture passage is from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. We have blue Bibles and the baskets and the seats in front of you. Use those if you have them. Um, in front of you. Those are yours to take. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to do that. While you're looking for the passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, let me just say uh, congrats on navigating the marathon. Um, it's always a little interesting getting here on these particular Sunday mornings, but you made it. And if you're experiencing a little bit of dissonance because those people are out there running and getting exercise, and here you are, you're sitting and you're listening to me, uh, talk. We're running a different kind of uh, race, right? Amen. That's what, that's what Paul says. Um, with, with a much greater prize at the end of the day. So be, be encouraged. Also, Jay Hand, who is one of our pastors, director of worship. This is, uh, gosh, the last six weeks have been like Jay Hand Appreciation Month. Um, but I want to say, say something else. He, launched, uh, two years ago, before the pandemic, applied to and got accepted to a, a pretty great kind of mentorship opportunity uh, that was delayed because of the pandemic for two years, but he's, uh, this whole week has been uh, with like seven or eight other worship directors from all over the country um, doing a, a mentorship kind of training session with Bob Coughlin, if you know that name. Uh, so it's a pretty big deal. Uh, so congrats to Jay on doing that. Thank you to Mark and our team for standing in the gap here. And what I'm trying to say is our expectations uh, for Jay should go up probably 25 or 30 percent when he gets back. So we'll see what happens. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. If you're physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's holy, true, and authoritative word. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says... In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts also. Let's pray together. Lord, would you widen our hearts to receive this word? 
correctly, and may your spirit work in such a way that this is a transformative morning for all of us. We are coming into this room in very different places, uh, with very different even beliefs about who God is and, and <laughs> what it means to follow him. And so I do pray that your spirit would work and give us clarity, would illuminate this text, um, and that you would empower us. We're going to be talking about a text that does motivate a certain amount of action and, and prepares us, honestly, for suffering and tribulation. And so I pray that we would receive this word with humility, but also with gladness and confidence in the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, two Sundays ago, we made the argument that we are all in ministry together, that we are ministers of reconciliation, imploring people to be reconciled to God through Christ. Together, we are telling people to put their hope in Jesus, who though he had no sin, was made to be sin by God, for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I will add, as Paul emphasizes elsewhere, like Ephesians chapter 2, we are also telling people that vertical reconciliation with God is ultimately the fuel for horizontal reconciliation with one another, which, biblically speaking, is the expected outcome of genuine vertical reconciliation with God. Now, that's, where, that's what we're saying. That's what we're telling people. But here's the thing. I, I wish people were frantically roaming the streets, trying to track down a Christian so that they can finally hear the good news, right? Oh, how I long for someone to just grab me by the shirt in downtown Gainesville and, and demand an explanation for the hope that I have in Jesus. I, I wish people were, were tweeting things like, you know, can someone please DM me the gospel? You know, I, I want to hear it and believe it t- today. Do these kinds of things happen on occasion? They do. But they're not exactly normative. Instead, there's a whole lot of skepticism about our ministry and our message. Skepticism from our coworkers, from our friends, in a lot of cases, our own family members, they're not so sure this ministry we have here as ambassadors for Christ is all that great. They might even think it's harmful. So what are we to do about this? We could take the zero-sum game power struggle approach in which we do everything possible to achieve cultural influence, and then silence our critics through shaming and canceling, and then in the worst cases, violence. We could try to prove our our ministry and message with a bit of an iron fist, either figuratively or literally. And some people associate Christianity with exactly this and criticize it accordingly. They might cite things like the Crusades or the Inquisition. There's nothing biblical about that approach. Or we could take the the kind of meek and mild cultural accommodation approach in which we constantly adapt our ministry and message so that it can mesh very neatly with the values and desires of our day. We could try to prove our ministry and message by being theologically flexible and trying to make sure we're never on the wrong side of history. 
But thankfully, the Apostle Paul shows us a third way, a truly God-exalting way to prove our ministry and our message. He was dealing with a different sort of skepticism than we're dealing with now, as we're going to see, but the methodology transfers quite well and remains relevant. So two exhortations this morning to those of us who are engaged in the ministry of reconciliation, which, as we argued a couple of weeks ago, is all of us. Two exhortations to those engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. Number one, speak urgently. And then number two, live faithfully. Live faithfully. Speak urgently and live faithfully. We'll start with that first exhortation. Speak urgently. Even though the Apostle Paul played a primary role in starting the church at Corinth, we have seen throughout this series that his apostolic involvement did not shield him from criticism. Rivals really, at the end of the day, opponents emerged in Corinth who tried to undermine Paul's spiritual authority by criticizing his physical appearance and his rhetorical abilities, his public speaking skills, his ministry credentials, and even Paul's sufferings and afflictions. In other words, Corinthians, are we are we sure this Paul guy is legit? Seems kind of weak to us. Seems kind of lame. You know, not really what, what you had in your mind's eye when you think of a powerful apostle of the Lord. And Paul's response to this criticism, which is one of the reasons he wrote 2 Corinthians, has already been very instructive. Rather than defend his ministry by directly challenging these very personal criticisms. You know, like, hey, hey, check out this, this sermon on YouTube, right? That one was pretty witty. I got a lot of views on that one. Instead of doing that, he's defended his ministry by describing the work of the Holy Spirit in him and through him. In other words, have I encountered afflictions of various kinds? Yes, but God has sustained me. Do I have as many formal letters of recommendation and ministry credentials as some do. No, but look what the Spirit has done through my ministry in your own lives. See how He's grown you and informed you. And He doesn't worry about you know, the metrics, right? In the past year, we've, we've done 87 baptisms. He, he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't worry about that. Instead, He simply tells the Corinthians, just open your eyes. Look what God is doing in you and among you. Because Paul knows that the efficacy of his ministry is ultimately about the Spirit and his apostolic calling, not his personality and not his specific gifts, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 make a lot of sense. And here they are, working together with him then. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says... In a favorable time I listened to you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So we might have expected Paul, in light of this, and criticism is particularly biting when you're pouring your life out 
as a drink offering like Paul was. It's, it's totally exasperating. You're giving your whole life to a cause, and what are you getting? Low-key criticism. And we might have expected Paul to, to slip into sort of the, the Debbie Downer, Eeyore mode, or, or at least let off the gas a little bit. But instead we get boldness and urgency. Instead we get, I mean, look at these Instead we get, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Instead we get, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. He lays into it. Why? Two major reasons. Reason number one. Paul was very confident that the Holy Spirit was at work in him and at work through the Scriptures and would therefore continue to do that thing that the Spirit does despite the circumstances. He knew that the Holy Spirit would continue to convict people and transform hearts, and therefore Paul's labor in the Lord would not be in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, Paul was so confident that this was the case that in verse 1 he repeats the same idea that he already mentioned back in chapter 5, Verse 20, he is, he is working together with God as an ambassador for Christ. And therefore, rejecting Paul's message of reconciliation would be tantamount to receiving the grace of God in vain. That's some confidence right there from Paul. Born to some degree out of his unique calling, his unique commissioning as an apostle of the Lord, but also born out of confidence that applies to any believer who is genuinely walking by the Spirit. Reason number two, which requires a bit of context. The, the scripture Paul is quoting here in verse two comes from Isaiah chapter 49, which was an originally, it was an exhortation given by God to the Israelites as they were leaving their extended season of exile in Babylon, something we talked about at length this past summer. And there was some immediate application for the Israelites in chapter 49. In the moment, it was definitely a call for spiritual rededication made possible on account of this servant that God was giving them as a covenant. You know, take advantage, Israelites, of of this emancipation, and, and return to me with, with your whole hearts. This is the favorable time for repentance and belief. Return to me, Israel, and worship me, and be a light to the nations. But the text, if you read Isaiah chapter 49, the text itself clearly foreshadows an even broader day of salvation that includes the Gentiles. And if you read Isaiah 49 in full, the the servant ultimately has to be the Messiah. He's, he's the only one who fits the billing. He's the only one who makes sense of this text. And Paul believed, as, as we do here at City Church, that Jesus is that Messiah. The true and ultimate servant of Israel. Thus, Paul's very emphatic statement to the Corinthians in verse 2, that now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's a day in which anyone from any corner of the world might put their hope in Christ 
and be saved. A preeminently gracious day in which we might, through faith, participate in Christ's death and resurrection, thereby dying to our sin and being raised into new life, hidden with Christ in God. And of course, if there's, track with me now, if there's, if there's a favorable time for salvation, then there's an unfavorable time as well. Thus, the ongoing urgency. Eventually, Jesus will fully consummate the day of salvation at his glorious return, and then the time to respond in faith will be past. So Paul was urgent because, to, to paraphrase John Calvin, as long as I can still proclaim the message of reconciliation, people can still receive it. The door to God's kingdom remains open. When you know these things, that I'm talking about, about the nature of the Spirit and, and your role as Christ's ambassador and, and the nowness of the day of salvation. You don't, just, you don't just sit on the message. You proclaim it with some, some confidence and, and with some urgency. And because you have the Spirit, and because you have God's Word, which is inspired by God and therefore fully true and authoritative, you don't have to get too cute with the message. And you don't have to be unduly worried about any sort of criticism. The, the British minister, Charles Spurgeon, very famously compared Scripture to a caged lion. He compared Scripture to a caged lion and, and wondered why so many people seem to be spending all their time defending it instead of using it. And he writes, Pardon me if I offer a quiet suggestion. Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. So church, even in the face of skepticism, and we face a bit of a different kind of skepticism than Paul did. Paul's skepticism was mainly related to his calling, his authority as an apostle. Our skepticism has a lot more to do, I think, with the message, although there is some overlap. Even in the face of skepticism, we have permission, and honestly, a calling to remain confident and urgent as ministers of reconciliation. It doesn't mean that we, that we out-yell the skeptics, that we take out our, our bullhorns and, and put everybody on blast. Carl Truman wrote a couple of years ago that these days, argument doesn't really count anymore. It's simply a matter of who shouts the loudest, Christians have no biblical warrant to get caught up in that sparring match. This is not the way of Jesus. But even though we don't put people on blast, we keep going, regardless of the circumstances, even when it seems borderline absurd to do so. We keep proclaiming Jesus with boldness and urgency, even when it feels like we're on the wrong side of history. It, isn't there something refreshing about this? You know, nationally, we're, we're in a season of, of peak disorientation and, 
and cynicism and despair. Every time we come up for air, it's like we get knocked down again by something else or maybe the return of the same thing. Everything feels complex. Everything feels just so unwieldy right now. And so we're tempted to, to respond accordingly with increasingly complex ministry strategies and, and nuances that account for all of this. I mean, I mean church conferences these days are like, like this, this gathering of, 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 I don't know, medical doctors and, and nuclear scientists trying to figure out what in the world you're doing out there and how to do it. We're tempted to respond to the complexity with all kinds of complexity ourselves and all these nuances, and then we get really overwhelmed. And even though we might still be doing the Lord's work, in some sense we're really doing it in our way, in our own power. So, I have some really good news. Bringing Jesus to people in this complex and sort of dispirited age means that we do so with gentleness, yes, but with confidence, with patience, yes, but also with the same urgency we've always had. And it always works, even when we're dealing with the scourge of relentless skepticism and criticism. And, he, and here's, here's the ministry strategy. You ready for the ministry? Here's the complex ministry strategy that Scripture holds out for us. We, this is Acts 9.31. We carry out this ministry of reconciliation, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's our ministry strategy. We'll come back to that in a minute. Three things before we move on to our next exhortation. Number one, we do need to pay attention to the defeater issues that are keeping skeptics from really hearing the good news that we're proclaiming. We need to have something to say in response to questions about the authority of Scripture, about sexuality, about suffering, and so forth. We won't all be experts in these areas, but we do need to be thoughtful and somewhat knowledgeable about these matters, at the very least knowledgeable about where we can direct people when we feel stuck or when we feel ill-equipped. You know, we can't just say, who cares? Today is the day of salvation. Repent! And ignore all of those items, all of those issues. We need to take them very seriously. Otherwise, it's like trying to convince someone to try the sushi at a gas station convenience store. Right? I mean, you can, you can talk all you want about the excellencies of the sushi, but the person probably isn't going to go in and buy the sushi because they had a friend that went into that convenience store one time and they didn't have a very good experience with the people that work there and it just doesn't look so good on the outside. You can't ignore that stuff. We need to be knowledgeable. We need to be able to address those things or at least point people to the right kinds of resources. Number two, in a skeptical age, we're tempted to say things like, well, you know, people just don't believe in God anymore, and we gear all of our apologetics efforts in that direction basically to prove God's existence. And some of that is all well and good and important, 
But here's what I've noticed. You've probably noticed this too. A whole lot of folks don't believe in sin anymore either. It's, it's a total non-compute. Maybe they see some sin in other people, but not themselves. So if we simply say, you need to be saved, don't be surprised if you hear from what? At some point, do we need to help people see their sin? Yes, but that requires some relational chips, plus it's, it's really the work of the Spirit. So in the meantime, we can make sure that we actually have a clear understanding of what sin is, that we can explain to others in terms that make sense to them. And let's be, I would argue, let's be vulnerable and honest about our own sin, identifying it and confessing it, asking for forgiveness, talking about how Christ has ministered to you in the midst of your sin. Why? Because doing all this will help others see their sin too. So you help others see their sin by talking openly and honestly about your sin. And number three, at the end of the day, you should be very encouraged by this. There is something compelling to people about boldness and urgency under duress, so long as it's not the yelling kind, the screaming kind. At some point, even the most vocal skeptics have to pause for a minute and think to themselves, why are these folks persisting with this ministry and this message? Especially when the social costs are high and not much seems to be happening. It stands out to folks. So keep going and be encouraged. So what do we do in the, in the face of skepticism? Well, one thing that we do is we keep speaking urgently. We, we stick with our ministry. We stick with our message, trusting that the Holy Spirit is at work, even in skeptical times. But what's our strategy? You know, we need a, we need a, we need a strategy. Because, I mean, life is, more than, life is more than sitting around a table with folks and having a chat, right? And if you work in the operating room at UF Health, the time is not always right to lean over to a surgeon or a technician and, and to say, have you heard the good news? Now is the day of salvation. Maybe you should say that if you're a surgeon and you're about to operate. You know, now is the day of salvation. I don't know. So what's our strategy? That brings us to our second exhortation. Our strategy is living faithfully. A primary fear for a whole lot of people, even if they don't perceive this to be their primary fear, has to do with damage being done to their reputation, usually related to their vocation or to their character. If you didn't know it, that's your number one nightmare. And once again, Paul experienced that in spades to the point, as verse 3 kind of hints at, that folks were trying to find fault with Paul's personal ministry, even though they were direct beneficiaries of that ministry. It does not get more frustrating and discouraging than that. So what did Paul do about it? Did he get really indignant? 
Did he get passive aggressive? Did he drop some, you know, truth bombs on Twitter with those little side eye emojis or whatever those are? Did he mention how many followers he has on Twitter or Insta kind of as a, you know, that sort of booyah response? Here's what he did about it. Paul commended his ministry in the face of skepticism by living faithfully and then cataloging his faithfulness, especially his faithfulness in the midst of great trials and afflictions. And we are talking about, as we've already seen even at the beginning of this book, we are talking about a lot of trials. John Chrysostom, an early church father and archbishop circa the 4th and 5th centuries A.D., so a long time ago, he described verses 4 and 5 of this text as a blizzard of troubles. And the troubles are arranged into these triplets, actually, which are first general troubles, like hardships. Then they deal with injustices done to him, by other people. That's the second triplet. That's like that's beatings, riots, things like that. And then the third triplet deals with personal afflictions like like sleepless nights. You know, maybe they're not anybody's particular fault, yet they're a trial in Paul's life nonetheless. So general and then injustices done to Paul and then Paul's kind of own issues, you might say. And yet Paul faced them with Verse 4, endurance, really probably best translated with patient endurance, which is a sign of credibility since, listen, phonies and self-interested people just don't tolerate the hard stuff. They are perennial comfort seekers. Here's another way to look at it. I'm borrowing language here from verse 4 again. Servants of God. Prove their ministries by living faithfully, even in obscurity or great difficulty. Those who profess faith in God but are basically phonies, you know, they, they, they would be pseudo-gods themselves even though they profess God. Those folks, they try to prove their ministries by being loud and argumentative and aggressive, even intimidating or maybe you take this, this sort of over-the-top charisma and, and winsomeness approach. If you're in vocational ministry, this means that you end up being rather bombastic and, and loud and just sort of everywhere. Or you end up wearing expensive shoes and designer clothing and doing a lot of smiling and, and then you, you kind of pace around the stage a lot, that sort of thing. How is Paul's endurance possible? How is his endurance possible? It was possible by the grace of God, as seen in some very specific gifts from God. Most centrally, you see this in verse 6, the Holy Spirit was powerfully at work, empowering Paul and changing his heart, which produced in Paul qualities like patience, and kindness, and love, and truthful speech, 
all of which are essential for faithful endurance. And the Spirit was giving Paul weapons of righteousness to ward off various kinds of spiritual attacks because we are opposed, church, by a real spiritual enemy who does not want us to faithfully endure hardship but instead be discouraged and even crushed by it. You can read more about these weapons in Ephesians chapter 6. So faithful endurance comes from God, which lends even more credibility to your ministry because faithful ministry is a clear sign of the Spirit's presence and power. That's the only way this kind of ministry happens. There's no way you're going to endure in the kind of way that Paul is enduring without the Spirit. Otherwise, you'll get loud and bombastic. Otherwise, you'll seek comfort. You won't make it. And so when it happens, it lends credibility to your ministry, to your message. But here's an objection, an important objection. Couldn't you grin and bear it, you know, without the power of the Spirit? Couldn't you live a moral life in the face of difficulty? Haven't people done that? Haven't people lived a moral life in the face of great difficulty? Even atheists, people that, don't, that want nothing to do with God, couldn't you do that? And of course, that would, that would undermine this point I was just making about faithful living proving the legitimacy of your faith to a skeptical world. That's a really important objection. And maybe you could live that way. Maybe you could live a, a somewhat moral life in the face of great difficulty without the Spirit. But here's the thing. You wouldn't really enjoy it, which is what makes the paradoxes in verses 8 through 10 really striking. This isn't just any kind of faithful endurance that Paul is talking about here. The faithful endurance that Paul is talking about, even in the midst of the worst circumstances, can always be joyful endurance. Do you see this? And here I'm paying particular attention to the paradox in verse 10 in which Paul describes himself as, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That might be the greatest paradox in the entire Bible, in the Christian faith. So Paul's ministry of reconciliation wasn't just faithful endurance, it was joyful faithful endurance, something that cannot happen apart from the Spirit's power. That's where I'll plant my flag. Dane Ortland puts it like this in his book, Deeper. It's a book that came out this fall. I highly recommend it. He says this in his book, Deeper. He says, we don't need the Spirit to live a moral life, but we do need the Spirit to live a supernatural life. In other words, we don't need the Spirit to be different on the outside. We need the Spirit to be different on the inside. Yet again, we don't need the Spirit to obey God. We do need the Spirit to enjoy obeying God. So joyful faithfulness, even in the midst of trials, that is exclusively a Holy Spirit thing. That's His territory because it involves 
inside change. In, in this kind of joyful faithfulness, man, it, it arrests the attention of others, including skeptics, in a way that really nothing else does. In fact, yeah, I'm not on Twitter, but here's, again, here's my tweet. I don't think there is a greater apologetic for your faith in the face of, of skepticism than joyfulness in the midst of sorrow. I do not think there is a greater apologetic for your faith in the face of skepticism than joyfulness in the midst of great sorrow. Credibility in the face of skepticism equals, here's the, the uh, equation for those of you who are in, in STEM. Joyful endurance. Credibility equals joyful endurance in the midst of ordinary and even difficult seasons. Now, is this, is this some kind of, of guilt trip for people who aren't experiencing the right amount of joy in the Lord? It's not. Not at all. But it is an opportunity. It's, not, it's such an encouraging, it's an opportunity to consider that, that proving your faith to a watching and skeptical world, isn't, it's not necessarily rocket science. You know, something that's, it's just, it, that's just for the intellectuals. Instead, the this, this strategy actually has more to do with spirit-filled, faithful living than anything. It means boldly and urgently bringing Jesus to people while we go about the rhythms of our everyday lives with patience and kindness and sincere love, serving other people sacrificially. Something that's possible for every follower of Jesus with our own unique mixes of personality and spiritual gifts and all of that. Something that's especially powerful right now given that we're living in such an anxious age. I don't know at least in my lifetime, if joy in the midst of sorrow has ever been more powerful, because everybody's anxious. Everybody's, everybody's freaking out. And this, this emphasis here in this passage on joy in the midst of sorrow, it's an opportunity to consider that if your life is frankly joyless, I mean, some of you are sitting here and you profess to be followers of Jesus, and you're all in, but there is no joy at all, or it's very low. If that describes you, here's what this passage shows us. Is, is it guilt-tripping? No. But it shows us that things could be different. They could be. Joylessness, check this out, joylessness isn't a lifelong given even if you're experiencing great trials. That's how powerful the Spirit of God is. You can say, well, you know, Paul, Paul was going through the ringer. And yet joy. How might we find that kind of spirit power rejoice? I don't, I don't have that in my life. I see it's possible, so now what do I do? We could talk about this for a while. This is sort of its own sermon series, living a spirit-filled life. 
would be like 15 parts. Okay, so I'm going to give you two things right now that I felt like the Lord was leading me to mention to you. I think these are spirit, speaking of impulses. Number one, how do you find this kind of spirit-powered joy? Number one, I would say throw yourself, and I mean that throw yourself language very intentionally, throw yourself into very urgent prayer. Turn your devices off. Find a quiet space and just wrestle with the Lord. Go to the mat. I am convinced a lot of us are missing out on prayer because we're praying rather shallowly. I'm talking about turn your devices off, go to a quiet place, and just go for it. Pray out loud if you need to. And then just pursue it. Or invite some friends to join you for a prayer gathering and press into this together. It is possible for you to text three people and say, I am experiencing no joy in my Christian life. Will you gather with me? And let's just let's pray together. I don't know that this happens very often. It should be normative for the people of God. Or if you just can't pray because the joy is so low and you're like, and ask other people to pray fervently on your behalf. Say, will you gather for me in my absence? <laughs> Spirit-empowered living is prayerful living every single time. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. And if you're out there and saying, I, I tried that and it didn't work, I, I get it. Keep trying and invite other people in your community, to struggle with you, to wrestle with you. Second thing. How do you find spirit-powered joy in the midst of joylessness? Consider the lives of those who have gone before you and learn from them. Do you know any older, wiser people who seem to be joyful regardless of their circumstances, ask them about it. Learn about their habits. Learn about their practices. I, I'm begging you in this, this age of, of new, 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 and which always seems to be uncritically coronated as, as better and better and better, please pay attention to the old. Ask people who have gone before you that you know. If you don't know people who have gone before you that are older and wiser, get to know them. And say, well, I am struggling. You have 30 years of experience on me. Tell me more about how you are living joyfully in the midst of sorrow. What are your habits? What are your practices? Learn from them. And this is why I'm so convinced. I could make a, a list of 100 reasons for this, but older and younger people must be in spiritual community together. It's a biblical non-compute for people who are older and younger to be siloed in the different worshiping communities. And here's the other way that we can, we can learn from the past, learn from the old. You know what we can do? We can read biographies of faithful, joyful Christians. And we can learn from them. And if you don't like to read, do the audiobook thing. Just this week, I cracked open... Arnold Dalimore's biography of 
the 18th century evangelist George Whitfield, who in many ways is a personification of this text. In fact, right after the title page of this, this sucker, there is a quotation of this passage. Read accounts like this. This one, it's been sitting on my shelf for a couple of years because it's like, like a thousand pages, and so I was pulling that thing out a couple of weeks ago with, with some anxiety, I will tell you. But it's been remarkable so far. Open with this path. Read accounts or find a shorter one and read that one. You won't be reading about perfect people. I mean, shoot, even the Apostle Paul was honest about his shortcomings. He called himself the chief sinner. But we can learn from them. So, so read backwards. Look backwards and learn from people who experienced joyfulness in the midst of great sorrow. What were their habits? What were their practices? Church, let's boldly and urgently tell people about Jesus in the context of a faithful life, paying attention to the nuances of our cultural moment and speaking into them. Let's be bold, let's be urgent, let's be confident, and let's live all of these things in the context of a faithful life by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Every week at City Church, we approach the Lord's table together as a people of God. It's an opportunity by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, to remember, but also to submit ourselves in faith to this meal that God, through the Spirit, might actually nourish our faith, might encourage us, even give joyless people a certain measure of joy. And, oh Lord, have you ever thought about this way? One of the reasons we participate in the Lord's Supper is for the sake of our joy, especially in the midst of great sorrow and difficulty. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, shared a meal with his disciples, and during the meal he took the bread, and he broke it, and he said, This is my body given for you, or broken for you. Do this whenever you eat of it, in remembrance of me. And then in a similar manner, after the meal, Jesus took the cup, and as he poured it, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it, in remembrance of me. And Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Because Jesus rose again, and he ascended gloriously into the presence of the Father, and he's coming back. And so when we talk about our Christian hope, it's not, an, it's not an if, it's a when. And that gives us, even remembering that, gives us so much joy this morning. Never been a greater time to be looking forward to something and not caught up in the moment, in the now. If you're a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to come participate in this meal. There will be an elder or a deacon on either side of this table. And they will have um, one of these bowls in their hands. And when you approach them, they'll take a wafer and they'll put it in your hand. And then you can pivot and there'll be some cups, the juice cups up here. You can take one of those. You're welcome to stand or kneel up here. Our space is limited. We get it. But you're still welcome to do that if you'd like. Um, or go back to your seat and take the elements. Um, and then after we're done serving communion, the elder or deacon who have helped with the service will be over at both of those doors. Um, and you're invited to come pray with them if you'd like prayer. As well, if you're here and you would not say you're a follower of Jesus, uh, maybe you're 
one of those skeptics we've been talking about. We love you, and we're really glad that you're here. We're really glad that you're with us even this very morning. Keep spending time with us. We'd love to get to know you uh, and wrestle with these things together. Lord, thank you for this blessed meal that you have given us by your grace. What a, what a joyful thing it is to come, to gather around the table as a diverse people, celebrating and rejoicing on the same Savior. Lord, I pray that you would minister in particular to joyless people this morning, people who are struggling or experiencing spiritual depression, whatever the case may be. I pray that there would be a certain amount of relief that would wash over us this morning, too, as we consider at the end of the day, even in the face of cynicism and skepticism, what can we do? We can continue urgently bringing Jesus to people in the context of a faithful life, being open and honest about our own sin, vulnerable, repenting, asking for forgiveness. We can do those things and trust that you will work in great ways. For those who are here that don't know Christ, I pray that instead of taking this meal, they would be duly challenged and convicted by this word and put their hope in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. 
song we could ever sing worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you
Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you.
please remain standing for our benediction. Uh, don't forget about the taste and see right after this. Uh, for the benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his shine, his face to shine upon you and gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, giving you joy. Praise God from Amen. Go in peace.
town by the river found I was cold and couldn't speak I started hearing something in the silence next to me I remember now in December how like a split second dream I've heard a summer song if I get it wrong you can find it in the east it's going it's going it's going it's going we're going That wouldn't say that I was well, but there's a certain sickness that's better than health. Cause every day was another way trying to get back to the dream of the summer song. If I get it wrong, you can find it in the East to school with. 